Hello, Independent Life Nation, and welcome to another exciting and unique Independent Life podcast. So on this episode here, Vanessa Spiro and I, and you might recognize that name from a previous episode a few episodes ago, who uh, came to us to talk about disability and her journey into it, uh, had a story for us that ultimately the uh, slogan, disability, it's not what you think, ultimately accumulated into a webinar. And this episode is a recording of that webinar that she and I did together. Uh, and this webinar is kind of like a disability 101. What does the term mean? You know, what is uh, some synonyms for it? What are some other good words for the word disability? Um, what is independent living? What is the independent living culture, the movement, our attitudes and beliefs about disability, stigma? We, we, we provided this webinar in the uh, context of uh, um, AgriBility, the grant that we have to serve farmers and people in agriculture who have disabilities. We opened it up and, and we had like a ton of participants for, for a webinar that we normally host. I think like 60 some odd people ended up registering for it. Um, a lot of people that work with farmers and people in agriculture, just to, to hear a discussion that Vanessa and I have uh, around this topic. It just ended up being that we recorded it and I uh, think it's just a, a wonderful opportunity to share what we talk about in terms of what is disability and what does it mean to have one and what is the uh, perspectives that her and I come into it from. We come into it from you know different uh, experiences and, and uh, we have a conversation about it and she's just wonderful. Her and I presented this past weekend at Family Cafe on other aspects of uh, agriculture and disability. And she's just a wonderful person to, to have a conversation with. And we were so you know, fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to host a webinar full of other people who are interested in learning and growing and expanding their perspectives on disability. I hope you enjoy and learn something from it as well. Welcome to Disability, It's Not What You Think. Dr. Tony and I, my name is Vanessa Spear. I'm with UF IFAS 4 H Youth Development. Hi, I'm Tony. I'm the Executive Director for the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. This presentation is uh, part of the Florida Agribility Program, which is supported by the United States Department of Agriculture. And of course, in collaborations between the University of Florida and our Center for Independent Living. You know, with this uh, presentation, what we're aiming to do is, uh, you know, discuss that within the disability community, you know, understanding the different words, uh, the laws, the culture of disability can can be uh, daunting to those that are, you know, not having as much experience with disability. And so what Vanessa and I are seeking to do in this discussion that we're going to have is talk about our personal and professional experiences as it pertains to the world of disability, to give people a lens into it. And yeah, go over some of the uh, different words that are used, uh, the stereotypes and stigmas that can often surround disability, talk about some tips for communicating with people with disabilities, and you know, even maybe just scratch the surface on uh, some of the laws, particularly the Americans with Disabilities Act, as it pertains to disability. And um, the, the title uh, for this presentation uh, came about um, from my discussions with Vanessa. 
Um, and so, Vanessa, if you didn't mind, maybe uh, orient us, because I think this is a, a good leaping off point to uh, talk about the origin story behind the title for our presentation today here, Disability, It's Not What You Think. Absolutely. So for those of you who don't, uh, do know me, I definitely share a lot of my personal stories because they have led to my professional journey also. And so I have a uh, eight-year-old son with Down syndrome, and he was diagnosed prenatally. And when I got the phone call, unfortunately, uh, diagnosis stories are oftentimes not the most pleasant experiences. And so I had received the call while I was at work and I was not surrounded by any family. It was um, kind of a bit shocking to hear, uh, you know, kind of expectations of, of what uh, information, what results you get from a test. And so I made some phone calls. I was unable to get in touch with my husband. And so I called my family, I called my father and my mother. And the very first thing that my father said to me, I said, you know, your grandson has a diagnosis of uh, Down syndrome. And he said to me, it's not what you think. And those were the words that I needed to hear because I had an impression, I had an idea of what a person with Down syndrome was like. Not that I had any experience, but I had a preconceived notion. And when he said that, that was exactly what I needed to hear to know that everything was okay, that I had the support systems and that I could learn and thrive with my son. And so that's really where this came about. It's not what you think. And um, I will say too, my father now has uh, patches going around. We're going to go ahead and, and use this term as much as we possibly can, because it definitely has a place in this conversation that we're having today. Yeah, for me, uh, you know, the not what you think aspect of this. And, and so I was I was born with a disability. It's a low vision disability that, uh, you know, has deteriorated over time, um, legally blind, likely to go blind. Um, and so I've, I, I've been in the world of disability for a little while, and I continue to learn about what it means to have a disability, uh, not just for myself, but encountering other people. And oftentimes, uh, what I what what I'm learning is is it's not what I think either. You know, for, for my experiences, uh, from other people's experiences, and how they encounter disabilities, and you know the the different types of perspectives that people have, I am continuing to learn. For me, it's a lifelong process uh, that has no finish line. You know, with that, you know, entering into a conversation like this, like for many conversations that have to do. With diversity and, and and groups that people might not be um, associated with, um, I often find that it's really important to let people know that we're in a safe space to have conversations here. Um, we do have the chat open if people want to make comments or questions uh, throughout this. We we want to attend to where people are uh, coming from and wanting to learn. And you're you're in a safe space to to learn. Please ask questions, make comments. It's the best way is uh, learning from each other's personal uh, experiences. And that's what Vanessa and I are you know, here to do. And we have a wide range of knowledge and attitudes and beliefs and experiences. And we want to be a, you know, in, a, in a space where that's okay to share those kind of things, even when we don't agree. I think it's very important. That's you know, if we can let go of our own biases and, and see the world through another perspective of someone else. Um, and to, to consider what it must be like uh, from their experiences and then to revisit our own perspectives and to reconcile the two, I, I believe is very important in, in how we can learn and, and foster you know, a worldview that you know, could be expansive and, and beyond what we might enter into this conversation with. 
and doing this with respect too. You know, we it, it's important that uh, we respect different beliefs and thoughts and attitudes. And you know, if there are you know issues or barriers or circumstances, you know that, that we see those as opportunities to grow and to learn. You know, I want to share everybody that we're in a safe space to learn, and uh, there's no such thing as a a dumb question or you know to share a perspective that Vanessa and I might not have or hold or be or articulating. Please. Please know you're in a safe space that we we all want to learn and grow. Uh, I, I I am continually uh, learning as as I go along, and I and I seek to continue to learn. And I usually learn best when people share uh, their perspectives and ask questions. So I just wanted to 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 kind of center this discussion around that safe space. And of course, if you don't feel comfortable, um, then you can contact us. We'll have that information at um, the end of the slideshow, and we'll we'd be happy to continue the conversation in your own space that's comfortable too. So we'll start with our, our definitions. We're going to go ahead with ADA definition. The definition of physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of an individual being regarded as having such an impairment and see a record of such an impairment. So for me, um, I have a vision disability. That's a physical impairment and it uh, limits a major activity of daily living, driving. I'm an adult who could drive if I had the visual acuity to do it. So it's a very broad definition. You know, we talked about physical and mental uh, being two categories. Uh, activities of daily living are something that's used in the, the, the medical and public health field, and they're very quantifiable. There's a list of what those activities of daily living are. Um, they're instrumental activities of daily living. This does get categorical uh, in terms of how it's defined, and, and it's very quantifiable uh, as well. But it, it's also, uh, in many respects, very broad. Like the, the next slide shows like a little, you know, more narrow, uh, you know, the physical, mental, but also, you know, that could be intellectual. It could be sensory. Uh, you, you know, so that gets into, you know, breaks out into further categories beyond the two that are sub, you know, subgroups of the those two categories. And 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 on the next slide, you know, is just a a, a smidgen of different specific diagnoses that would fit under the physical, mental, or intellectual and uh, sensory in there. I mean, there's there's literally literally thousands of different types of diagnoses that would fit under the uh, ADA definition. I mean, this is just a smidgen of what, what, what those might be. Anything from autism, PTSD, muscular dystrophy, epilepsy, you know, deaf or hard of hearing, blind, um, there's spinal cord injuries there. So the, the definition is very broad when you think of physical, mental, but when you get into the very specifics that would be covered under the ADA, there's literally thousands of different types of uh, diagnosis. You know, and I, and then this is one of those things where you always learn something new. So I'm sitting here looking at this list again and migraine headaches. So I suffer from migraine headaches, have my entire life. Um, it, and it's kind of amazing to look at the history of the, um, the treatments that have come out over time for a lot of the disabilities that are on this list, as well as the fact that you know, every disability has maybe a, a an almost a set of items that could be considered if you have this disability. So for Down syndrome, for example, um, you know, there's certain aspects that are very particular to that genetic disorder. And so, you, you know, somebody who has Down syndrome may or may not have those certain characteristics or traits, but oftentimes a lot of them do. And so that becomes easier to kind of understand that diagnosis and the services that are necessary 
And, and so that kind of changes over time, though, and advances depending on really where we are, where the agenda is being pushed with um, people with that disability. So just a snapshot, you know, just a couple of things. And so if we're looking at the statistics, and, and this is just for Florida, uh, so you can find your county, find where you're from, and you can look at this data, which shows you the percentages of um, people with disabilities. And so if you look at some of those counties are as high as up to 26%. And you can see that it doesn't matter urban versus rural, uh, coastal versus inland, you're going to have um, just a variety. And, I, and, and this, I think what's interesting about this, uh, there's 67 you know counties in Florida, and this is representing those and the darker shades of blue are higher percentages of uh, disability and lighter or lower. Um, this is all ages. You know, when we look at you know, groups like people who uh, are adults, uh, it turns to one in four uh, people would have a disability on average. And, and when you look at this being all ages, there's, you know, a, quite a few people. And, and so it, it's often noted that people with disabilities represent the largest minority population um, uh, among all the different types of minority groups that can be broken out demographically. So, you know, one out of four adults, that's 25%. Um, and, and as we get older, that percentage goes up. So over half of people uh, over the age of 60 has a disability. In terms of the worldwide, if you took all the people in the world who had a disability, it'd be the fifth largest country uh, population-wise. So it's very common. Um, if you do not have a disability, um, there's a very uh, like, high likelihood that you know someone that has a disability, uh, someone that perhaps you even care about or, or are close to, and, and uh, you're going to be encountering people throughout your day-to-day -day lives uh, that has disability, whether you can see it or not. Um, and, and, I, and I always uh, like to, to think of this as just as a, a natural part of the human condition, that, that impacts all of us, either directly or indirectly, um, that if a person lives the average lifespan, uh, they too themselves will, uh, if you don't have a disability now, will likely acquire one. Um, so this is something that I find to, to be a, a, an area that is important to all of us, a, a community that I think we um, will all belong to if we don't yet uh, belong to it. And if we don't yet belong, that it's a community that I think it's important uh, to understand and uh, something that hopefully can unite us, you know, and, and bring us uh, closer together since this is something that we, we have in common. And thinking about the fact that this is the, you know, adult and youth population, and it is probably more likely that some of our youth are the ones that are getting diagnosed, especially if they're needing services for public school, that that disability has to be diagnosed and has to be recorded in order to get services. And so if we think about that, about that percentage, and I'm sure, this resource probably does have that broken out, adult versus youth. But I know that I've come across quite a few adults that are learning as adults that they are now being diagnosed with a disability that, aha, my life might have been a little bit easier earlier on had I known this, had I been more aware of it, had I had some assistance and support. So it's definitely more prevalent than, than we can imagine. And, and so I, that statistics, again, one in four, like that's huge. Yeah, I, I love that you're bringing that up, Vanessa, because um, likely this percentage is underreported. Um, and, and, and so underreported because people aren't aware that they potentially have it, have a disability or sometimes on survey research and, and doing these kind of things, 
um, people may not want to even admit on a survey that they might have a disability. So when I was working at the University of Florida, to your point, I was on a project that were supporting students who had uh, learning disabilities, who I, I, I came to learn they preferred learning differently instead of LD learning disability, learning differently. And um, one of the, the, the common uh, traits was is that many of these students didn't realize that they had LD um, until they got to college. And we would you know, have focus groups with them and, and how it, in retrospect, helped them to better understand some of the, 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 the challenges or barriers that they faced academically um, before they realized that they had that diagnosis. So it's not uncommon that people uh, will not uh, be diagnosed with a, you know, especially a, a learning disability um, or other types of disabilities into young adulthood. So that, that is some, somewhat common. Mm -hmm. So now we're gonna throw it out to our participants. What are some synonyms for disability that you have heard that, um, you know, and you can do the good, the bad and the ugly, um, Again, safe space if you feel comfortable to do that. When you think of disability, what do you think of? What are the words that come to your mind? You've got challenged, handicapped, differently abled, slow, all abilities, impairment, varying abilities, special needs, disability, unique abilities, retarded, profoundly disabled, handicapped. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, when I think of some of the terms that, that are used there, um, you know, where do you hear handicap still being used? The, the place where I hear it still being used quite a bit is in, in parking. In mm -hmm. The DMV. Parking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do people yeah. know the kind of more, um, what, what now the consensus is, is the, the way to refer to those parking places? Accessible parking, typically, like the words that are being more encouraged nowadays. And, wow. and so when I, when I hear um, special needs, um, you know, Vanessa, I think you might be able to speak to this more. It's usually in, around the realm of education that special needs tends to be the word that's predominantly used for exceptional mm -hmm. student education. Mm -hmm. uh, impairment. Um, I, I, I work, uh, you know, from the, in the public health field and occupational therapist or physical therapist will talk a lot about impairment reduction. You know, I hear that used uh, quite a bit in the field there. We had a couple of folks in the, in, the, in the chat also mentioned that they've seen that term handicapped in bathrooms as well. Still used in bathrooms. Yep. The handicapped stalls. Yeah. And I, I want to say thank you. I know that somebody did put retarded in the chat box. And, you know, I grew up as an 80s kid. And that was a common term that we, mm. we use often. Mm -hmm. And it has an actual definition, which is slow. Um, so, you know, to slow down. And um, so, so unfortunately, it did cross over to that negative connotation. And it, it has been difficult as an 80s child. And obviously, once my son was born, you know, um, that was a word I definitely wanted to strike from my vocabulary. But it was it was difficult at first because it was something that was a norm for a while, whether it should have been or not. That's not the question. And so, you know, we're learning. We're all learning. We're all, uh, you know, are the awareness that we want to have is what's going to change us from maybe using some of the words that aren't such positive. Um, you know, don't have positive connotations. Um, the other thing that's interesting too with Down syndrome is a, a term that used to be very common way back when um, was mongoloid because of the features. And so that's um, another term that was more towards, and, and that was, you know, addressing culturally um, Mongolian population. 
And so it's, it's interesting how, how words do change over time. And I think one of the big things is, is we'll go ahead and we'll throw that up there is that there's no expectation for all of us to, to know the correct word at any time. Um, my son, you know, Down syndrome, uh, trisomy 21, if you want to be technical, but I still go to doctors and they will say, oh, he has Downs instead of Down syndrome. And so, um, you know, that's in, in the Down syndrome community, we don't usually say Downs, we say Down syndrome. And so that's something that, okay, but this is a doctor, this is his livelihood, he is helping my child. Um, am I going to get hung up on the term that he used at that moment? I'm not going to, because overall his heart is in the right place. And I know he's, he's, he's coming from a time period or she's coming from a time period where maybe that was the acceptable term and just have it, you know, been to a cultural class in 20 years to know that we've updated some of the terms that we use. So just, you know, keep that in mind. We're all kind of adjusting and learning what, what the best terminology is and it changes. It definitely changes on a regular basis sometimes. Absolutely. You know, you really have to think about where we're, who's the one that's determining the right, the wrong and and, the, and those kind of things. And, and that's something we can get into the culturally, but often it does happen in post-secondary institutions and academia drives a lot of this. It's certainly where the demedicalization of disability came from, where people first terminology started really coming from and in even other areas in, in terms of diversity. Um, it, it does often, and, and yeah, you would need to be getting, uh, you know, your ear to the ground and, and, and you know, getting your doctorate in, in these areas to be able to keep up with it. And so what I find is a lot of times that people like Vanessa was mentioning that are in the world of disability can often have uh, a lot of grace for people who aren't keeping up with what the consensus is. And that's certainly something that, you know, in this presentation, you know, we want to you know, draw people's uh, attention to. It's hard to understand. And uh, if people you know, may be using outdated words, then, you know, there, it's a good opportunity to disorient and to say, you know, some of the things that need to be said. And from, from my perspective, um, and this is just me, uh, you know, words are important. And yes, words do matter. Um, at the same time, uh, the word itself is kind of like, for me, uh, a signpost that's pointing towards the essence of what we're discussing. So if that doctor is saying, you know, downs and, and perhaps the, the, the etiquette is down syndrome. Um, well, he's or she is trying to, you know, get to the point of something that we need to perhaps discuss. Um, we can get, you know, uh, have a long conversation about the word, but then, you know, it's kind of delaying getting to the meat and potatoes of what the word is pointing towards. And uh, for me, I often think about the, the philosopher Alan Watts once said, you know, we don't get wet from the word water. And so I th often think sometimes when when I have difficulties with words and, and how they're being used, you know, I, I often try to, you know, take the power out of them, you know, as well, you know, so they do matter. And, and, and so a second follow-up question that we have for people, because even the word disability uh, can be a very hard word for, for some people to hear. Um, and it's the word that has been institutionalized. The Americans with Disabilities Act, it's used in education, it's used in medicine, uh, it's used in transportation and fair housing. When you look at a lot of the laws that are on the books, the disability is the word that uh, right now uh, is being most used. Um, and given that, you know, some people don't have a great association with that or, or the other synonyms, um, what would be a better word? Again, we're, we're welcoming people into the chat uh, to, to, to have this. So if things are evolving and words do matter, is there, is there a better word 
um, that we could be using to describe what this word currently is pointing towards. And while everybody is, is thinking about that and putting it in the chat box, hopefully, uh, person first language, if you're not familiar with that term, so it is putting the person first and the disability second. So um, he's uh, not, it's not a Down syndrome child, it's a child with Down syndrome. It's not an autistic child, it's a child with autism. So it's putting the person first and, and then that disability second. And, and that, you can't go wrong with person first language. Um, that, that's kind of a, a standard that you'll always be in a safe zone, I would say. And like I was mentioning before, when we were working with the, the students who had learning disabilities, they, they, they preferred the word learning differently. Um, and that was their choice, you know, to, to, to be more empowered with a, a different way of, of describing what disability is. I've heard neurodivergent. Um, you know, I've heard spectrum of capabilities. Uh, you know, and, and given that, you know, maybe uh, there's not a lot of uh, input on the chat, puts towards the essence of this question, it's hard to, to come up with that word that could capture what we're talking about that's also empowering. It's not easy. And if we do come up with that word, is it is it going to be a word that we get 100% consensus with? Um, you know, I've heard handy capable or like these other kind of things that it, uh, for some just sounds like they're trying too hard to come up with a word to to describe the essence of what we're we're talking about to put these softeners on it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it it it's difficult. Words do matter, right? So uh, is there a more empowering word? It, it, it's not easy to come up with uh, what, what potentially that word uh, might be. All right, what we got, Noel? We have a couple additions. We have people with functional limitations, differently abled, neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Paula just said she learned yesterday that the school systems are changing labels instead of profound, it's IND. Uh, in, instead of being ESC, so IND meaning intellectually disabled. And, and I mean, if you think about that, as Tony referenced before, exceptional student education, um, you know, and if, so you're saying exceptional, you know, that's a little more of a, um, a positive uh, connotation than, than some of the other words that we've used in the past. Okay, where do we go to next? Where do we land? Um, so here's just, this is, you know some of that that stigma again. We're we're kind of part of part of the solution, I would say. And so a lot of us are coming in with um, some some history. I mean, I had a stigma when my child was diagnosed. Like I'll I'll be the first to admit it. And you hear that a lot from diagnosis stories from families that they had a perception or uh, an idea of what the disability was that their child was going to have um, based on what they knew from the past, the history, the stories. And our, you know, our history is, it's pretty short. You know, for those of you that are aware, ADA was passed in 1990. That's not that long ago, 33 years ago. So it's a short story right now. It, it really is. And one of the things here you see, uh, not every disability is visible. And so that's something that we really are faced with as um, educators and professionals and practitioners that there are a lot of invisible disabilities. You don't always see what somebody is um, facing with and somebody is dealing with on a regular basis. And those are what we call the invisible disabilities that unless somebody tells you or you recognize it, you're not gonna know. 
that there's something that they might need assistance with. And I often think about, um, you know, stigma and, you know, why is there a stigma re related to disability? And, you know, I continue to examine that. Um, and I think like one of the more, I think, tangible reasons is that exercise we just went through, you know, and, you know, you open up a thesaurus and you look at all the synonyms for the word disabilities. Um, they're, they're not too flattering. You know, the words we do use matter. That's part of it you know, the stereotypes that a society might have about, you know, what it's like to have a disability likely goes into it. And, you know, those stereotypes can be be driven by, you know, culture, you know, pop culture, so many different things that are, are, are out there that people consume and could have all kinds of generalities that don't apply specifically to people. For me, you know, when we look especially towards mental health, and some of the stigmas that are associated with that um, and, and people perhaps not disclosing that they may have some challenges regarding that um, and what it really means. As somebody that uh, is in the area of helping to serve people with disabilities, stigma is an important issue to address. When I was working at the, the, the VA, the Veterans Health Administration, and I was working to reach veterans that were coming back home from the recent conflicts with uh, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and or any mix of those. One of the things that we, we found very challenging was that um, of those veterans that have those types of service-connected disabilities, only 15% of those veterans that had those disabilities were accessing care and getting any assistance for it. One of the things that uh, I was very interested in was why. Why is that you know, happening? And the most common response I got from, from meeting with veterans was because of the stigma. They were you know, not wanting their friends, their family, potentially their employers, uh, or others to know that they have uh, a disability. And so the stigma was precluding them from, from getting services that they could benefit from. So I find that stigma is a very important issue to address um, and, and assist people in overcoming especially people that could you know, utilize some, some resources and services. I think about this all the time in the position that I occupy in serving people because I'm thinking about the people that aren't coming to us and, and what can, can we do you know, to help destigmatize uh, disability so that people that could utilize resources and services can overcome uh, that, that kind of stigma. That really spoke to me because I see veterans uh, being very courageous and very brave. And so if it's impacting them, that shows me that stigma is a, a very real issue uh, that definitely needs to, to, to be addressed. That's really relevant to, um, again, where we are in our professional lives as well as our personal life. But if we think about the fact that we are trying to be accessible for all to uh, you know, be a part of our programs, and if there's a stigma that that person is facing that they already feel like they don't even want to share that they have a disability or recognize that they have one, but there's an expectation on us as professionals to make accommodations or to provide type, some type of a service, but but that that person isn't even comfortable with the fact that they have a disability. And so we always want to do our best. So I think being conscious of that and knowing that 
when we look at our programs, when we look at things that we offer, when we look at the world that we're living in, if we're just thinking in the mindset of, we don't always know what somebody else is going through. And so if we're just off the bat providing the services to the best of our ability, providing the accommodations for everybody, whether or not they have told us or not, um, you know, we're doing our best. And so that's really the impression, you know, um, we're not all going to know every right thing to do, um, but we know the wrong things to do. And so I think we can we can take that with us and just remember that in what we're doing in our professions. And I've done a lot of you know work in this area to better understand stigma. And, and even for myself, like I still sometimes will struggle uh, with with disclosing disability um, when I go to a doctor's office or somewhere else where I'm needing to complete written uh, forms that uh, aren't accessible for me and my vision. And I now have to ask for assistance. Um, and usually I'm having to ask somebody who's very busy to take time out of what they're doing to come assist me. You know, I sometimes struggle with that myself, even as long as I've, I've been living with this and, and realizing that, you know, people are, are typically very accommodating and uh, being able to do that. I, I often still find myself thinking like, oh my gosh, are they going to think poorly of me? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to think I'm illiterate? And, 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 and so when I think of stigma, I do often think that, you know, it's part of the human condition that we, we are social beings and, and our number one need is to be accepted by people. Our number one fear is to be rejected by people. And so I think the more that people can be you know, open and accepting, then I find that that's very common, more often the case than not, um, the better because it does take a level of vulnerability on the part of a person with a disability to, to talk about it or disclose it or to ask for help. So I, I often challenge myself and others who do have disabilities that are experiencing that vulnerability or that fear uh, to lean into it and with courage. Courage can't exist unless there's a little bit of fear there. So I, I always find that stigma is incumbent upon uh, all people. The person that has the disability uh, to overcome stigma, you know, fear, fear is part of the the perpetuating of the stigma. You know, and, and so the acceptance of, of people who don't have the disability that, that may be in a position to help um, and be accepting, is a, it's also incumbent there, you know, and how we can destigmatize disability. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that this is definitely very common. And I will always obviously speak to the parent of a child with disability because that's the life that I live. So again, when I'm signing my son up for something, do I disclose? Do I not disclose? Should it matter? What will it affect? Because I don't want him to be denied opportunities and services, but I want him to have the best experience that he can have. So, you know, am I going to put my foot forward and trust that this organization is going to do that? Or am I going to feel like, um, you know, we've been discriminated against and they don't want my son to participate for whatever reasons? And so think about all of those times that anybody that's participated in something has been discriminated against when they have disclosed, which might be the reason why they aren't disclosing um, and sharing that they have a disability before they attend your program. So we, we have to look at it like an open book and consider all those scenarios and all of those things that, you know, that somebody is facing. And that's where it just comes back to being open and having the conversations and inviting and creating that inclusivity and sense of belonging. Um, and if you've, um, this comes later in the slides, but I'm just gonna you know, say it now. Again, we've said ADA, 33 years old. If you have not looked at the video, um, Capital Crawl, when they were looking to get ADA passed, 
And the fact that, you know, 35 years ago, there weren't accessible walkways. There weren't, if you were in a wheelchair, you had to go in the street. You couldn't get onto the sidewalk. There was no little ramp for you to get onto the sidewalk so that you can be safe. You had to be in the street with cars. Okay. And that's not that long ago. And so think about just the history of that. I think we, we kind of get to that probably, um, should we jump around, Tony? Should I just keep going for it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah, mind yeah. jumping around. Yeah. <laughs> we like to jump around. PowerPoints are so linear. It's hard to have yeah. a circular conversation. <laughs> Which is yeah, why so you'll get this after. So if you look at this, here, here's by the numbers. Okay, so here are some things that have happened, you know, over time. You know, civil rights was really the, the precursor to the disability movement. You know, it followed up after that. You know, in 1972, the Center for Independent Living. So think about what is Tony's organization, the Center for Independent Living, okay? And what does independent living mean? It means that giving people with disabilities an opportunity to live independently, okay? So not to be uh, in an institution, um, to maybe grow up at home and have the same childhood uh, any other child would have, but just the only difference is this child has a disability, but they get to grow up the same as their other siblings. The Rehabilitation Act addressing uh, needs that can be met for, for people in workforce or in um, other areas. And Tony can probably speak more to the direct implications for the Rehabilitation Act because I'm obviously having like a mind blunder right now. <laughs> um, Education for All Handicapped Act, that was the beginning of what is more familiar to us as the um, idea. So individual, I can't think of acronyms right now, Tony, you got a disability education act. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> acronyms are not working with me today. <laughs> it's alphabet soup. Yeah. It is. It really, really is. But um, but just look at the dates on these. And that's really enough to tell you where we are in the journey, um, where those with disabilities are are in the journey. And so, and so there was a lot of things that were going on uh, during that time in that era, which led to, you know, the demedicalization of disability, which really started occurring in the late 90s. And is, you know, still today, especially in the areas of public health, where instead of just focusing on the individual and trying to fix the individual, it looks at the social and environmental context in which disability occurs. And looking at that, that and how we can uh, adapt and modify social and environmental conditions to address disability. And I think it's important when you look at that, you know, disabilities opposes traditional thought on disabilities or impairments to be cured. And I think that that was the old science was let's let's fix you. Let's, um, you know, turn you into neurotypical. Let's, um, you know, make you like everybody else. Um, and so that your disability isn't you know, as prevalent or noticeable or affecting you as much. And obviously that's not the thought anymore because what, at what point was, why was there that negative connotation with disability? Why was it something that had to be cured? Why, why couldn't it be that this person has value in society for who they are, um, not what they have per se? So, you know, I think thinking of it in that way, um, you know, I look at my son oftentimes and, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to characterize what is a feature of his disability versus what is a feature of his personality. Like, who knows? There, You could never draw that line of, you know, what is what, nor could you do that with anybody with a disability or not. And so that, that kind of brings me to, though, you know, I look at my son and to know that 40 years ago, people thought he had no value. His life had no value in this world. And knowing the value that he brings to our family and to society for people that he meets, 
that is very sad. You know, that, that makes me very sad to think that had this been a different time, he would have been treated a lot differently. Um, and he wouldn't have been living at home growing up with us. That wouldn't have been necessarily the norm unless I was somebody who was fighting to change that. And that was in the seventies that that started. Um, so I, you know, I, I face that a lot on a regular basis and it is sad. It is sad to think that, uh, 40 years ago, my, my son had no value in this world. The movement still continues. You know, again, this is under the context of understanding the community of people with disabilities, that it's a movement, it, it, it's a culture and it's services. Within the culture, there's uh, terms that, that that are quite frequently utilized, and, and this is a list of them, whether it's diversity, inclusion, equity, independent living, ableism, um, access and accessibility, um, universal design and effective communication. So, so these are terms that are, are quite often used. We got some slides uh, up ahead that'll unpack some of them. Um, diversity. Uh, I, I find that sometimes defining these terms could, with words can be difficult, and that you know graphs uh, can can you know do a better job at it. So, recognizing that we are all individual pieces uh, that are unique, um, and at the same time, when we're included, we're all one. You know, that we have more in common uh, that we than we do differently. Um, this is a graphic that was uh, shown to describe inclusion within emergency management. Within emergency management, um, this this has some legal implications. This definition. So when a disaster occurs, a natural disaster, we're in Florida, we get hurricanes. It's the law that people with disabilities be included in general population shelters if they don't have a major medical condition, um, like needing to be on oxygen having a, a personal care attendant that might need to take care of some self-care. Special needs shelters really are only for people that almost need to go to the hospital, that they have a medical condition that's pretty significant. For myself, I have a disability and I'm in decent health. I'm to go to a general population shelter, as is someone who is deaf and doesn't have a major medical condition, or someone that has autism and doesn't have a major medical condition. Uh, this is not widely known. And so we do a lot of education for telling people in emergency management, when you refer somebody to a general population shelter, um, and we use this a lot, and we say, you know, exclusion would be keeping them out of the shelter uh, altogether, a general population shelter. Separation would be, you know, having a general population shelter with adjacent buildings, one building's people special needs, and the other one's uh, the general pop. It, you know, integration which would be you know, like within a shelter, uh, people with disabilities are in one room and, and people without disabilities are in another. Now that can help happen when there's uh, shelters that um, accommodate people who have sensory challenges, you know, people with autism perhaps might need a safe space to go into and integration is the appropriate thing to do there. But inclusion would be, you know, everybody's within the same space, everybody's within the same shelter. And this could be schools. You know, this could be a lot of different settings that we, we see the different levels of, you know, between exclusion to, to separation, to, to integration and to inclusion. But inclusion would be the model that at least uh, today that we're, we're most shooting for, uh, but it isn't always the right one, but is the one that's the most ideal. You opened up my question I was going to ask you. Is <laughs> inclusion always the way to go? Is that always the best for the situation? Yeah, and I, I would say no. Um, you know, it definitely I depends agree. on the context of of the, the person who has the disability, the resources and supports that are uh, available or not available at that time. Um, I think it's the ideal, but uh, at times it's not always the most appropriate. Exactly. 
Um, and we have to think about all of the history, the experiences that people have had. And so sometimes inclusion isn't appropriate. It isn't the best um, environment. And again, I'll throw it back to my experience, which is with my son, where before I had a child with disability, um, inclusion made the most sense to me. If a child has a disability, he should be in a classroom with his peers and, um, you know, have assistance, obviously, but pulling him out all the time, that's, that's detrimental. That can't be good for the child. Lo and behold, I have a child with a disability and um, inclusion is not always the perfect setting. Um, sometimes I prefer activities that are fully with the disability community. And sometimes I feel like we can have that expectation, that accommodation and, and do well in an activity that is fully inclusive. And so you kind of pick and choose. And so I think that we also have to recognize that inclusion isn't always the way to go. It depends on um, if we're teaching a class, what are we teaching about? What is the material that we pre we're presenting? Is it appropriate that you could be just one class and it's inclusive and you create the steps and it works out okay? Or maybe it, it needs to be a disability-specific program um, targeted towards, and, and not even just um, all people with disabilities, but perhaps we're looking at physical disabilities versus intellectual and cognitive disabilities and what's appropriate for those two different types of disabilities. And so I think we have to remember that inclusion isn't always the answer. And like Tony said, it's the ideal, but it's not always the best. It's not always the most appropriate depending on other factors. So definitely keep that in mind. Well said. And I think, I think this has been seen a lot. And so hopefully you have seen this already that we really understand the difference between equality and equity. All things being equal, you give everybody the same, you know, so that first picture, you gave everybody the same size rock so they could see over the wall. Uh, but when we're looking at things equitably, then you give what that person needs to be on par, that they can see over the wall, you need three instead of one rock. Um, so it's, it's giving what is need. But then right here, you've got that extra addition of when you remove a barrier, a systemic barrier, and then what can be achieved at that point. So I've been in, in places where I've had to articulate the differences between equality, equity. And again, I, I think the graphics do so much better of a job than, than when I'm able to explain it. And um, the, the last one there where, where the barriers just removed altogether. And this barrier could be housing, it could be transportation, it could be employment, it could be access to school. That fence could represent so many different things. And, and with universal design, you know, that was one of the terms that we use there. And, and this is something that the University of Florida, I know, is very encouraging in the educational system, is that to remove the barriers altogether for anyone is, the most, is again, another ideal to shoot for. So, so ideally, um, if this was school, um, post-secondary education, um, if a person had a disability, they wouldn't have the need to, to present the professor with an accommodation request, that the accommodations would be there for everyone uh, to, so that everybody universally could access the educational content, the materials, uh, whatever it may be, that any barriers already removed for, for, for any kind of situation that, that someone may encounter. Um, and then that's the ideal, you know, again, place to be. It goes beyond you know, equality, equity, and it's it's what some have called just, you know, this is the just way, you know, to, to do it. So um, again, this is, that's, that's what we're hopefully uh, aiming towards and, and we progress as a, as a, as a society and, and culture and getting towards where we have universal designed access.
Yeah. And if you're not familiar with universal design, then definitely look it up. There's some resources at the end of the slideshow, which I know we're getting short on time. Um, and we do want to leave the opportunity for questions. We knew we weren't going to get through everything um, because we really just kind of wanted to open this up as that discussion and get more comfortable with the idea and the words surrounding disability. But universal design is something we really should all be incorporating in everything that we do. And so it's really breaking down the notion that if you've ever heard, what kind of a learner are you? Are you a visual learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? Are you an auditory learner? Guess what? We're all different learners depending on the type of material that we are learning. So every time we are educating, every time we are having the conversations with people, um, we need to be doing everything. We need to be pre presenting that material, sharing that information in various different formats to meet everybody's needs, no matter if there's a disability or not. And universal design was initially created for the disability community. That's how it started, but now it's, its implications are for everybody because it's helpful for everybody. So, you know, just remember that too, is that we can all, um, you know, use that uh, to our advantage. And we've got so many great resources for those of us. I know we've got a lot of um, uh, University of Florida faculty on this call right now. You know, UF has really been doing some great new branding materials, new ADA accessible. And so all of that stuff ties into that also to make it more user-friendly for not just people with disabilities, but everybody. Well said. So maybe we'll, we'll, maybe go through a few of the independent living culture slides and then we'll just kind of wrap up a little bit and hang out for question and answer and we'll send you this PowerPoint for sure. So independent living again is the idea that people with uh, disabilities represent a culture that has certain tenets to it, certain beliefs, some certain philosophical foundations. And, and this is what, what some of those tenets are is that people with disabilities um, have a shared history and a, and a shared struggle. Uh, you know, we, we just scraped on some of that history today about, you know, people with disabilities before weren't living independently, uh, many of them. They were institutionalized they, against their, you know, own freedoms. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it continues today to be a challenge, but, uh, you know, especially leading up to today, um, you know, having access to education, work, transportation, housing, um, uh, it, it continues to be a challenge. The movement is still alive uh, and, and trying to really help facilitate. And, and through that you know, shared history and through that shared struggle is a bond you know, that many people with disabilities have with one another. Um, I, I, you know, I can um, connect with Vanessa, even though I don't have children uh, you know, going through the, uh, you know, that I'm raising that have a disability. Um, I, I, as a child with a disability myself, being raised or um, just having that special, you know, kind of like understanding of it's not easy and there's challenges with it uh, is very important in terms of having that sense of uh, community. Um, I, this understanding that every human being should have, you know, some basic civil rights and, and that people with disabilities um, are among all the other groups whether it's race or, uh, or, or male, female, or you know, gender, or whatever it may be, like we, we, we are asking for the same civil rights uh, that, that, that people are you know, uh, inherently uh, you know, should have. Um, that people with disabilities have valuable experiences and perspectives um, that can really help and benefit uh, a community. 
that that like Vanessa was saying, you know, earlier, this this idea that we don't have something of value to contribute um, uh, is ridiculous. It's just it's a real stress that people can have. But uh, there's so much that that can be contributed. I I always find it very interesting when we I, I go over you know famous people who have disabilities, and and a lot of times people do have no idea about it. Like people that have revolutionized science, leaders of countries. Um, that, that have just done remarkable things. Um, we, whether it's big time like that or just in everyday uh, living, uh, you know, we, we have a lot to contribute. And I, I think that that last bullet, their valuable perspective and experiences to contribute with the community. I think that that's where it's also really important where we think about um, what we're doing professionally and personally, and are we including the disability community? Are we inviting them to the table to participate? Are they sitting on um, committees that we're part of? Are they um, part of the planning process for things that we're implementing? Are they part of the conversation? And, and oftentimes that really is the, the area that is overlooked. Um, you know, we might check the box for race, ethnicity, gender, um, even urban versus rural. So, you know, where you live, but are we doing also disability also at the same time? So. Um, and I think a lot of these kind of echo a lot of what we've been talking about, um, you know, should not see themselves as problems to be solved. We, we talked about that very much so in a couple of slides ago uh, with one of the timelines. The um, medical model. That's how the medical yeah. model is. Let's fix them. Let's cure them. Mm -hmm. uh, best, like the social yeah. environmental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and this, I think, is really, really important. Are the best experts on their needs? So we cannot possibly learn everything about every disability. We saw the list in the beginning. It's just not possible. But asking people, you know, if they have disclosed, asking, you know, what is it that I can do for you? What can I provide? What, how can I help? Um, how can I accommodate you? Like just asking those questions and not being afraid. You don't need to be afraid to ask those questions. And so um, sometimes people don't tell you but maybe you notice that they could use some help, but they haven't told you. So maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not responsible, then I don't have to do that. But at the same time, you can still, you know, ask simply enough. And I know I've had this situation um, in some of our 4-H programs where somebody doesn't tell you. And so you're kind of like, hmm, I think that maybe this person has a disability they haven't shared with me, or maybe they aren't diagnosed, or maybe it's just characteristics that look similar to another type of disability. It's not my, my um, I don't need to know for a fact, but what I can do is I can go up to, if that's a child, go up to the parent or even the child, if they're old enough and say, is there anything I can do to help you? Is there anything that would make this easier for you? Is there something I can do or provide to make this a more positive experience? Um, and, and those are, you know, that's a way to engage, to, to bring that person back into the fold, to create the inclusion and the, the sense of belonging that we want. And um, oftentimes people will be able to tell you, well, uh, you know, the lights are really bright in here. I'm having a hard time or it's really loud or I can't um, see the material that you're presenting very well. Simple things that we can just do to make that a better environment. Yeah, and, and working at a, a, a Center for Independent Living, um, there's 15 statewide, there's 15 centers, at, uh, sorry, there's 400 centers throughout the nation. One of the requirements is that over half of the staff that work at these centers and over half of the board of directors it has to have a disability. 
Um, and, and it's been wonderful to be a part of an organization that is uh, delivering services uh, by people with disabilities, for people with disabilities. And, and that helps to, to really inform what is the best approach uh, way, because we have the lived experiences, but also asking those we serve. You know, how can we be, do, be doing better? What are we not doing that we should be doing? You know, the, the, I think the model, you know, especially the medical model before was like, you know, this other person's the expert and they're going to tell you what to do uh, versus, you know, let's learn a little bit about the people we're, we're, we're seeking to, to serve or support or to connect with um, and learn from them. You know, what, what is the best way of uh, going about and, and doing those kind of things? And, uh, you know, another facet of uh, community is that, you know, we're stronger together and being united. And I, and I go back to um, what Vanessa and I were talking about earlier is that, you know, disability is very common. It, it touches all of us. And, you know, given that we arguably live in a very uh, divided time uh, over many other areas uh, within uh, our, our society and, and within, you know, the state of humanity, um, what an awesome opportunity to, to be united, to come together um, in terms of disability. To, to connect, to relate, uh, to learn about one another, to learn about ourselves. Um, th this cuts across all ages, cuts across all other demographics, whether it's race, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, male, female, um, birth order, political affiliation, religious and or not religious affiliations. Disability cuts across all demographic areas. And what a wonderful space to be able to come together and, and to be more united. And, and as a community, when we recognize that, uh, it gives very much a, a sense of connection, belonging, and unity that, uh, that I believe uh, many people are, are seeking and, and needing. I think that is the perfect closing because <laughs> we are over time. <laughs> so um, I think that is, that is honestly perfect to end right there. And um, I want to thank everybody for being with us. And uh, we hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.